0: Today, I am speaking on the topic, Prosperity Hijacked. And uh, let's read 3 John, verse 2. Uh, This is a scripture that certain preachers, they want to brush this scripture aside. They say, it's only a greeting. It doesn't mean anything. It's not doctrine. It's not a doctrinal statement. It's it's just like saying hi to somebody. Very well-known preachers will say that. But uh, considering it's in the Scripture, considering it is the most seasoned writer of the entire Bible, John, who was the last one to write, I think we should pay some uh, attention to it and not just assume that he's just uh, putting mindless words in there. So he says, and actually I feel this way towards you today. At home, I feel this way towards all of our friends around the world and towards the people in this church. Beloved, I pray in all respects... That you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. And if you wanted to have a Bible study on the words there and the etymology of the words, it means to be successful on your journey. And you can see here that, that it is continued on the soul prospering. And so if we do well in our soul, our mind, will, and emotions, it affects all of life. Let me make some statements here. Prosperity means well-being, spiritual, mental, social, and material. All those areas starting with the spiritual. So we're not talking about one area. We're talking about all of them. Second statement I want to make, there is a universal striving for well-being. You know, this is, is, is in, it's in the human psyche. Some of you uh, immigrated to Canada because you felt it could be a better future for you. Well, who put that initiative in you? We believe that that's God put that in human nature. Now, it can become abused. It can be manipulated. But the basic idea that you want to look after your family, you want to have a good life, that is something that God put inside of people. Now, there are extremes on every side. Now, what I want to address today, I'm going to tell you who the hijackers are, and then I'm going to pick up this message in the future and give you more of it. Uh, in fact, I think it's going to be very exciting, but I'm going to lay a good foundation today. I'm going to say things that maybe you didn't expect to hear, and uh, you may want to think about it. But, you know, there is, there is so-called a prosperity gospel, and, and that has come to mean... Uh, all kinds of things, uh, manipulative fundraising techniques, uh, self-centered preachers who are teaching a, a good message maybe, or maybe sometimes not such a good message, but teaching a message that at least has some scripture in it, but using it for self-serving purposes. And so it's, we have a very negative connotation. Uh, and then on the other side you have people who say oh god never promised to help you with your finances and so they're completely anti in fact in, in just uh, i just heard a preacher very very well known preacher very very well known In fact, his clip on YouTube where he said this statement I'm about to quote had 1.3 million hits, so that's pretty good. And he said, actually, he actually said this. Very highly respected North American preacher. He said, for the most part, money and riches are a curse. Now, I realized right away when I heard him say that, that, that the only person that will ever say that is a person who has a lot of money. Are you with me? So I checked it out, and sure enough, he does have a lot of money probably more than anybody in this room. So it's easy to say, well, you know, riches and money is a curse <laughs> if it's not a problem for you uh, or if, you're, if you're, everything is set up for you. So, but you have these extremes. And so uh, the one side, I feel a little bit hijacked by that side. who who are doing all kinds of strange things that I don't see in Scripture, and I don't think you see in Scripture either. And then the other side, who as soon as you talk about God prospering you and God helping you in finances, they they, they talk about it like it was something dirty, like something shady, something that a crook would deal with. And, And so it reminds me, of a statement from Martin Luther. I think you put it on the screen. Martin Luther said like this, human nature is like a drunk peasant. Lift him up into the saddle on the one side, over he topples on the other. I think what Martin Luther was saying, you, oh, you, "Oh, you got even got his picture. You see, a handsome-looking fellow." He says, "That's human nature. You know, people go on the extreme on one side; they're like drunken in a stupor of poverty, idealism, and then you put them up in the saddle, and they fall over on the other side and go weird on that side." So, my point in these teaching is to get everybody in the saddle. Back in the saddle again, <laughs> and when we can move forward, come on, that's a good time to clap, you won't have any chances, so so do yeah, do that and so Then I, I, you know, as many of you know, I answer uh, questions on television nowadays, and and so somebody asked me this question. I don't know if we have aired my answer yet or not, but I can only give a two-minute answer. This person wrote and said, I've been taken advantage for years by the prosperity gospel and preachers promising financial increase for giving. How do I get over this and find joy in giving again? I don't know who asked the question, but I like the question. The person says, I want to have joy in giving. That's a good motivation. So I said something on television, but I wish that person would listen to the whole thing. Now, so let me give you a little bit of a background. If we go to the first 39 books of the Bible, called the Old Testament, and look at the prophets and the patriarchs, you know, God is revealed as Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. I mean, in all of them, Adam, take dominion. Abraham was blessed in all things. Isaac. He saw increase during a time of famine. Jacob, David, Job lost everything, but he got twice as much back. You know, the whole story there is that God blesses us spiritually and also in the material area. That is why when Jesus said to the disciples after the rich young ruler had walked away, you remember, Jesus said, oh, it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to be saved. And the disciples didn't say, oh, hallelujah, Jesus. That's why we were thinking too. They were shocked. Why were they shocked? Because they were immersed into the Old Testament way of thinking. They said, who can be saved? And then Jesus explained, well, it's not really having the riches, it's loving them. It's lusting after them, desiring after them, rather than desiring after God. But you can see their shock. Now, even the Levites in the Bible, you know, they they received the tithe, the 10% income. And so the Levites were not allowed to own any houses. They couldn't own anything. So that's just a word for those preachers who think the tithe belonged to me. If you ever had a pastor say, Well, the tithe belongs to me, some pastors do that, they equate themselves with the Levite. Well, I said to that pastor, You better not own a condominium, you better not own a car, not even a donkey, you better walk to church. So if you're going to follow it all out, so that's why we never practice such foolishness. Of course, the tithe is for the gospel and the work of the church, you know. But some have done that. But even the Levites were provided for. Then you have, so we leave now the Old Testament. I'll give you a quick history lesson. Then you have Jesus and and, and the apostles. And even when Jesus was born, yes, there was no room for him in the inn, but it wasn't because Mary and Joseph couldn't afford to go to the Hampton Inn or the Holiday Inn Express, it was because there was no room. And in fact, we know at Jesus' birth, he received great wealth, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And the least expensive of those was the gold. Frankincense and myrrh was very expensive. So Jesus had a, his family had a great infusion of wealth right from his birth. And, 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 yes, Jesus said, I have no place to put my heads, because certain times he didn't. He was traveling around. Uh, but he also fed 5,000. He fed 4,000, you know, not bad. And, and, and some have said, well, you know, they couldn't even pay the taxes. He had to find a gold coin in the fish's mouth. No, that's not what it said. It had nothing to do with them not having money to pay the tax. Jesus was teaching them a lesson. But, but he did find the gold coin in the fish's mouth. Are you with me? And then Paul, Paul had such wealth that they put him in prison, and the governor extended his prison time hoping to get a bribe from Paul. So that's kind of strange. If, if the governor had known that Paul is a real poor person, he has access to no money, then why would he extend his prison sentence in hope for a bribe? Doesn't make sense. So you have all that. So that's kind of the idea in the book of Acts is that God is not an irresponsible dreamer. He doesn't give an assignment to take the gospel to the world and then doesn't care about how it's financed. No, God works with us in finances. But thanks to you, that's another good place to clap. I want to take all the chances I can get for a clap because I know parts of this you don't want to clap at all, so, so let, let's let cover that. Then we go now after that, after that. So we go a couple of generations after the book of Acts. And then what comes into the church is a poverty ideal. And even if you were a pastor or a priest or a monk, you take a vow of poverty. So to be really spiritual... You should be poor. That was the idea. And and this went on for centuries. There were exceptions, but generally speaking, you know, you just... Be faithful and humble and stay poor and one day you'll get to heaven and there are golden streets and pearly gates. So I, I could never understand that. How come those ungodly pearls and gold was suddenly godly in heaven? But anyhow, we leave that out of it. And, and so, you, you know, there was this ideal. You could see it in Canada. I remember as a, a young preacher, I traveled a lot to the, uh, to the province of Quebec and you could see there. In those towns, and it's still maybe there today, not as much, the people's housing was very, very poor, but there was a huge, even the smallest town seemed to have the huge cathedral, sometimes inlaid with the ceiling in gold. So the idea was that you as an individual should be poor. See, I told you you couldn't clap for certain things, but I'm just saying it. And, and so, the idea was that poverty is a blessing. That came in. That's why I talk about the drunk peasant. You know, <laughs> you can go on both sides of the horse and fall off. And, 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 and the arguments that was used for this were things like, the disciples were poor and couldn't pay taxes. But that's not really the case at all. Or they would say the saints were poor. They would say that, you know, and then later on in, in, in evangelical church, it was like, Uh, you know, when a revival came, it was often the poor people who embraced it first. So they said, well, that means it's a blessing. And then they would say, look at some of the people in the Bible who had money, uh, who who had a lot of money, and then they backslid, like Solomon or like Judas. But the fact of this, of course, is that there are poor people who have lived godly, and there are poor people who have lived ungodly. And there are rich people who have lived godly, and there are rich people who have lived ungodly. But this was the idea. And so, you know, I've kind of experienced both sides of this. So so when I was raised, where I come from first, and maybe many of you as well, we still had a lot of this poverty ideal. I've still been in services where where the pastor said, we're going to receive the offering. It is a necessary evil to pay the hydro bill. Literally, it's a necessary evil. That really inspired everybody. Can you see the faith rising in the room? I, 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 and, and, you know, I still remember my mom and dad. If There was one particular preacher. He always had the worst-looking suit. He had big, it was baggy around the knees. Which was considered very good because I mean he was kneeling down praying a lot, and, and he was very wrinkled and he has holes and everything. They thought that was really holy. I told you a story. Such a good story. I'll tell it again. We had a, a gentleman in the church when, when I was a child, and and he he had this ideal. He was a single guy, nice man, hardworking man, but he always kind of looked very drab, you know, and so. People said to him, you know, you should should get some new clothes. His name was Sven. It's a very Swedish name, Sven the Swede. (laughs) And so Sven, they said, Sven, you should get some new clothes. So one day Sven arrived in church in a new suit. I still remember it. It was a nice navy blue suit with a white shirt, something like like I'm wearing today. And people in church were so excited. They said, oh, Sven, you look so nice. Oh, they even said, did you see Sven? He got a new suit. He, he looked, didn't that look good on him? Because they were hoping for him to find a wife and everything. He's kind of up in years. But anyhow, you know, he just was too busy for to look for that. He was, you know. Uh, and and so everybody, so then, so that was, I wouldn't have remembered it. If that was a story, I would have not have remembered it. But then next Sunday, he was back in church, and he was back in his old drab clothes. And the next Sunday, and finally someone said, Sven, what happened to your suit? Oh, he says, I burned it. I put it in the fireplace. Why? He says, well, I didn't want to become proud. I didn't want to look anything. I, <laughs> oh, God, help us. Now nah, I'm saying, I, I've experienced this. So, so he, he was just so, you know, so, so that's, that's an extreme. Now, then in my lifetime, I experienced a revelation. It, it wasn't with me. It hit me in my early 20s. When I read that book by Gordon Lindsay, who's long gone to heaven many, many years ago, and I I didn't like the book at first, but I began to realize that the people in the Bible, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of them, they were blessed by God. They could handle finances. Yeah, finances, it could be a curse, but it can also be a blessing. And and we started to talk about sowing and reaping. How many have heard of that? Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. And, And this became a revelation. It's wonderful. Amen. I'm glad for that revelation. But so today I'm saying there's been a hijacking. And I'm going to talk about this because I love you. I I love you and I want you to prosper and be in health as your soul prospers. I'm talking to you if you're a single mother I'm talking to you. If you're retired, you say, well, I'm not going to be too inspired, Peter, by this. I've just had my best wage earning days. Well, I'm going to believe God for you to have even more wisdom in whatever dealings you have in the rest of your life. Or if you're starting out in business. You know, these, these are interesting times. We have just heard announcements from the United Nations that, that the world poverty rate is going to double in 2020. Double because of the lockdown. That's why the World Health Organization just announced that they're telling the governments of the world, including Ontario, don't lock down society. And our beautiful government who has been so listening to the World Health Organization are now in disobedience. But anyhow, that's beside the point. I'm saying this, it's suicide. People are hurting, especially they tell us that single mothers are the most devastated by the increased poverty because of the, the you can understand the difficulty of handling a child, no daycare, no job. There's a lot of pressure. So I'm I'm not speaking some highfalutin idea. I'm talking to everybody here, and, and, and I'm concerned about the hijacking of this good message so that some people feel as soon as I announce I'm going to talk on this, oh, He's some, he's some, uh, you know, prosperity preacher. That's dirty. No, we're here to help people. We believe God is for you. Wherever you're at, God is for you. He's not left you alone. And so, why am I preaching this? Well, first of all, let me announce the four hijackers I found. Number one, abuse. Abuse of this good message. Two, is a poverty ideal. Like my friend Sven, you know, and others like him. Number three, cessationism. Cessationism is just a, a belief that everything seized with the apostles. God doesn't heal anymore. Gifts of the Spirit are not for today. Everything seized. And so God is not going to help you or give you wisdom and finances. All you have to do is hang on and then drop dead and go to heaven. Which really, if that's all it is, you may as well get saved and then hope that somebody shoots you because you don't want to shoot yourself. That would be suicide. So I can just go right into glory right away, you know, cessationism. Then legalism. We'll touch on that. Why am I talking about this? Number one, for Christ's sake. Jesus Christ has done something beautiful for us. 2 Corinthians tells us that he who was so rich, he became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. Oh, thank God for Jesus Christ, every area of life included. I'm doing it for Christ's sake, and I'm doing it for your sake, for our sake. That's the only reason that Pastor Nathan and I would ever preach here. We're not here because we particularly enjoy giving speeches. We want to help people. We want to help people. Maybe you have a lot of burdens. Maybe you say, I've. maybe you're like this person who wrote to me and said, I feel like I've been fooled. How should I have joy in giving? Well, I want to help you. And number three, I'm speaking this for the gospel's sake. We have 8 billion people that need to be reached. Billions of them haven't heard the gospel. And so I'm not going to let someone hijack this message and and make us feel dirty and unclean because we are believing God for resources to be put in our hands that we can be a channel to finance God's global plan. I'm not going to let that happen. And so I want to just go straight to it. There are some abuses. I'll give you one starting out with. First one is making finances a sign of spirituality. In other words, the implication is if you don't have finances or financial wealth, there's a spiritual deficit in your life. And that is not what the Bible teaches at all. That's an ungodly abuse. They would quote verses like, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And then they would say, Well, if all these things haven't been added to you, you mustn't have been seeking God. And often they say, Especially you haven't given to my church or my ministry. You are poor because you don't give enough. Now, see, that's equating having wealth with spirituality. But, you know, people can be wealthy for many reasons. People can be wealthy because they worked hard. Maybe they went to Las Vegas and had a good weekend. Maybe they won the lottery. Maybe they are a Mexican drug lord. I don't know. Maybe they're just good at investment. I, there could be a lot of reasons why people are rich. Maybe they're running a Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme. It worked as long as it worked. So so this sense of intimidation that if you don't have much, you're less spiritual, that's ungodly, and the Bible tells us so. Let me read some verses here, First Timothy chapter 6. Paul writes, Men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. So he says this is, this is a depravity to try to insinuate, even if you don't say it directly, that if somebody, for example, isn't healed immediately, that there's something wrong with them, or someone is not having all, everything they need, that there's something wrong with them. That's evil. That's a depravity. But then he says, but godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. In other words, living a godly life can help you to gain, but it's got to be based in contentment which means you're not lusting for the increase. You're not lusting for money. You're, 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 you have your contentment in your relationship with God and that you have enough for the day, and Jesus Christ is Lord. And so you say, like Paul, I could abase or I could abound. I'm content either way. And then Paul says in verse 7 here, for we brought nothing into the world, so we can't take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these be content? In other words, he's saying, if if you just have food and clothing and a shelter, roof over your head, and you have Christ, be happy, rejoice. Doesn't mean that you don't have a desire that you might see God Increase you that you might work and attain something. It just means that on the inside you have this basic contentment. I'm a believer, I'm identified with Christ. And and so there's no condemnation, there's no pride in that, there's no put down of others. And then he says, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation. Could be all kinds of temptations to steal. See, I told you there wouldn't be many clapping opportunities, so I'm glad you took them when you had them. Just steal, be tempted to do shady deals, to cheat, to not give to the Lord. There could be all of temptations. If that's the overriding ambition, I want to I make money. And a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root. Many say it's the root. No, it says it's a root of all sorts of evil. Not every evil, but all sorts of it. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith. So in that sense, if a person is going to get wealth and it's going to cause them to walk away from God, in that case, wealth would be a curse to you. And I pray you'll stay poor for the rest of your days. But if you say, no, please don't pray that, Pastor, because I don't want to walk away from the faith. I want to give credit to God. Well, then I pray that you will prosper and be in health as your soul prospers. That's, that's going to be my prayer for you. So, so, so then, but then the same, I'm still in the same chapter. If you go to a little later on, on, on verse 17, it gives further clarity. Paul says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. And in Canada, most of us, compared to many parts of the world, we are rich. Don't be conceited. Don't look down on other peoples. Or fix their hope on uncertainty of riches. You know, just hoping for this is, I'm going to win the lottery. This is going to happen. This per- No, don't do that. But on God. Put your hope on God. And then it says, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So, you got to take that, be content. If you have food, clothing, and shelter, be content. Thank God you belong to Jesus. But then remember on the other side, God is a good God. And He says here, He richly supplies you with all things to enjoy. So, God is not looking for you to be miserable. He's saying, if your attitude, your spirit is contentment, you know, enjoy God. God wants you to have good things. And so, this idea, this abuse that You equate spirituality with wealth. Could could God bless someone with material wealth? Absolutely. We're not negating that. But to make it a system to say, if somebody is not having this or that, they're not as spiritual as the other person. That's wrong. That's against the Bible. So the, ba- the basic here is, let's live in contentment. Let's thank God for salvation. Thank God that God is on your side. God is with you. Come on, let's give the Lord a praise for that. Let me, let me talk about another thing that can be abusive. Now, you know, everything that's abused, there's something real to it. You know, I, I already quoted 2 Corinthians chapter 8 to 9, where it says, chapter 9 says, He who sows bountifully will reaps bountifully. We know that all of nature is, is, is on sowing and reaping. We are now in a time of harvest right now. So we know that that's how the kingdom of God operates. But there is an abuse, and many of you have probably been exposed to this. I have. It's been presented in this church, not by myself and Pastor Nathan, but many years ago, by a dear friend of mine. I love this brother, but he that's what he did. I think he stopped but but name your seed. I mean, you, in other words, the idea is, well, a farmer if he wants a corn harvest, he picks corn seed. If he wants wheat, he picks wheat seed. So, so the idea is you put it into a system that every time, and people give a lot of money they say, well, you give an offering to this ministry under my anointing, you can name your seed. You name your seed. So you say, I'm planning $100 for a new car. I'm planning a, $100 for a for a husband or a wife. I'm giving a, so, so, So they even say, put it on the envelope. Name your seed. Now, could it ever happen that somebody has a need in their life and says, Lord, I feel like you want me to give this. And Lord, you know my need. And you mention it in prayer. Of course. In my book that's going to be released in two weeks, I talk about a situation where where I had a great need in the ministry. It wasn't so much personal, even though it was personal too, but it was in the ministry. And while I was praying, then the Lord put it on my heart to give a large offering to another organization. I talk about that. So, of course, God can speak to you, but I'm talking about making this systemic. You see, it sets you up for, uh, it sets you up for, for disappointment, for failure, for mistakes, for pride. Because if you, if you put that in the system, now what if you did receive some blessing? You would say, it's because I gave that $100. It's because I gave that $300. Look at that. So you get all the credit yourself. On the other hand, if somebody talked to you and to say, I've been believing God for a wife for a husband, and if you give to this ministry and this anointing that I have right now, you tell a few stories. Somebody, I was over in St. Louis, and somebody gave $300, and she found her husband the next week. And so you go out and do that, and then you're setting yourself up for trouble because you're probably going to run into some guy, lady, next week. You say, that must be the answer. He looks so cool. Then, then you marry him, and, and three months later, you find out I married a demon. And you say, Pastor Nathan, would you please counsel me? I don't know what to do. I say, Wait, where's the preacher who talked you into this? So, so there's a principle in the world, in the word that is that our Heavenly Father knows what we have need of. And so, yes, I'm not saying you cannot sometimes tie and I. We present, Lord, we would like you to help us with this. We present this to you. But we will never get to the point where we negotiate, I'm giving this, Lord. I'm cornering you, Lord. I'm giving this offering for you to do this for me. That's presumptuous. That is why those who who, who are speaking evil of the message of prosperity, they have a point. Because we are making ourselves into God, we're saying I I got God on my little string and I'm telling Him what to do. I'm telling Him how to handle this offering, and the preacher is encouraging to do that, and it leads to questions like this: I feel like I've been abused. So I wanted to just lay it out open. You have never heard us do that because we don't we believe in sowing and reaping, but there's not a single example in Scripture where anybody named their seed. No, you trust your heavenly father. Come on, I'm preaching good here right now. Uh, uh, You see, plus it puts the preacher in a dangerous situation because normally there's something in society, if you advertise falsely, you can be sued and taken to court for false advertising. That happens sometimes. A company has to take down their advertisement. You know, and they get sued. You promised that the product I bought would do this and this and this, and it doesn't. You know, but preachers, sometimes on television, can make all kinds of statements. And you're so nice, you don't sue them. I heard of one preacher, he was offering a blessed red string. And he said, put this blessed red string in your wallet, it's going to bring prosperity. He had testimonies. And he said, even wear it around your waist, it'll help you lose weight. Are you listening? And people, people, oh, that's so wonderful. Oh, he had fasted. He fasted for 21 days and got this revelation. Ah, Don't be so easily fooled. You end up being disappointed. You fall into snares. All right. So so let me give you another one now that I'm at it. Are you still with me here? This one you're exposed to all the time. If you listen to television, giving by the Jewish calendar. The idea is that certain time people say, oh, that's God's calendar is the Jewish calendar. Well, let me ask you this. What calendar was God on before? In the time of Abraham, what calendar was he on then? And they said, now, there are certain times of the year, usually this time, the Day of Atonement on the Jewish calendar, and they take this verse where it says, you know, don't come empty-handed. It is so important to bring your offering now because heaven is open for a limited time now. Make sure. You see, this is pure sales technique. What does a salesperson do? Number one, you present the product. Number two, you have testimonials. Someone say, "Oh, you know, my teeth has never been as clean as this. Once I got this teeth cleaned, it's just it's a life changer." Have you noticed how many life changes there are every day on television? Oh, I bought this pillow. It's a life changer. I didn't even know what sleep was till I had this brand of a pillow, and I had this kind of a, 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 a what is it? Mattress topper. Tina teaches me all these things. Oh, it's, I, I'm floating on a heavenly cloud on this one. Oh, oh, I'm so, I am so, you know, and then after that, it comes, so you have testimonials. So these preachers have testimonials. Oh, how they fasted, and somebody did this, and somebody received this. Of course, if you try 10,000 people to do the same thing, somebody's going to have something good happen. And and then you have scarcity. This is what makes this technique so powerful uh, that that you give according to the Jewish calendar, because it's closing. It's, as soon as that day of atonement is over, your offering won't have the same effect. The, you know, you create scarcity. You better hurry now. This is antichrist. It's, it's no wonder, people. Because they try it three times, four times become disappointed. But then there's, you know, Christians are so humble. Oh, he's such a mighty man of God. She's such a mighty woman of God. And she had fasted for 30 days before. I don't want to say anything. Speak up. You have as much of Jesus in you as anybody. Amen. So, so, So let me just read to you. Galatians 4. It says, now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless things? to desire to be enslaved all over again. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you. So Paul says here, such preaching that leads you into this, it's worthless. It's weak and worthless. You know, I want to talk to you very honestly, because I'm also talking to my partners around the world. This is a Something practiced. I know some of you have been a part of churches where people come in, especially this time of year, and do one of these kind of offering appeals. And, and let me tell you how it works. So I could even name the people, but I'm such a nice person. I don't, because they wanted to come to our church. So you set up a deal with a person who becomes an expert in this kind of fundraising, and we know it moves people, and then the guest takes 25% cut, plus travel and expenses. Now, we don't operate like that. So a lot of churches do. It's, it's, and you should know that. You should know that. You've probably been a part of a church in some time in your life that operated like that. It was for the building fund. It was for this. But the one who presented who's, who goes from church to church to do the same thing, it's a business. So I just want to say, for those who criticize the message of prosperity, I see your point. And to those who are, have a poverty ideal, I don't see your point. But Maybe we drove you, somebody drove you to, but I'm saying there's a way for the peasant drunk to not be drunk anymore. Not fall down on this side of the horse, not fall down on that side of the horse, but get back on the horse and ride into every blessing God has for you. Let me give you another one. Some preachers will say to you that every time you give an offering to my ministry, God is going to give you a hundred times as much back hundred times as much back. And they take that. I'll read the scripture in a moment. But first of all, let's just think about that. Put up the chart I had here. I want you to see this. So put up the chart. So I, I, I'm going to show you that, that, that how, how preposterous this is. Put up that chart. Do you have that chart there? I sent it to you. Okay, well, I, they don't have it, but I'm going to give it to you. Do you know that by this kind of thinking that every time you give, you, you will get a hundred back? So let me give it to you. If the first Sunday you give one dollar. By the second Sunday you will have a $100. And then you give that to multiply that 100 times, you will have $10,000 by the third Sunday. By the fourth Sunday you will have a million dollars. By the fifth Sunday you will have a $100 million. By the sixth Sunday you will have $10 billion. By the seventh Sunday you will have a trillion dollars. And by the eighth Sunday you will have $100 trillion. That means that by the eighth Sunday that you would receive a hundredfold return from $1, you would own the entire globe. You would own New York City, every car, every house. You would own every stock market, U.S. stock market, global truck. You own everything in eight weeks. Everything. I mean, how fun would that be? How fun would that be? If you own everything, every banana, every gold bar, every silver, you own every bank in the world, you own everything, and nobody else owns anything, I think we're coming after you. You better not to protect it. So, so, so can we conclude that we have to kind of rightly divide the word of truth? Are you enjoying this teaching, by the way? Am I doing any good? You wait till next Sunday if you think this is good. I'm going to give you something. That's, so, 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 so let's read what Jesus said and let's try to understand it. But, but don't fall for everything. So, so he said like this in Mark 10, 28. He said, no one has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and the gospel's sake. He will receive a hundredfold now in this present age, houses and brothers and mothers and children and farms along with the persecution, don't forget the persecution part, (laughs) and in the ages to come, uh, eternal life. Well, first, first of all, this is for those who have left everything for Jesus and the gospel. So what does it mean? Obviously, it doesn't mean 100 times. Does it mean that somebody couldn't give an offering or a gift and God would multiply it 100 times? Certainly that could happen. But we don't put that in a system. It could mean several things. First of all, it could be if you went out for the gospel and you left your house where you're living, What Jesus is saying, you're going to have a hundred different places you go to, and I'm going to make sure you have. I'm going to help you to have a place to sleep, and you left your sister and your brother; they were your helpers, but I'm going to have new helpers for you in a hundred different places. Or it could just be, you know, a lot of the Bible is hyperbole. It's an expression. Like if I say like this. Dean Morris eats like a horse. Doesn't mean that he became a horse. Doesn't mean I think he's a horse. He's one of my best friends. So I wouldn't have said, if I I say that Alex is hungry as a wolf, doesn't mean that he took off a wolf characteristic. I'm merely speaking in in hyperbole. I'm just making, and so the number hundred is a number of completeness. And so often when I quote this verse, I don't go into this explanation. I call it maximum optimum yield. It means that whatever is going on, God says, you know, you're giving to my kingdom. I want to help you to have the maximum. That means if the market is going down, you're trying to sell your condominium, but condominium prices are dropped, you're not going to get the same as when the condominium market was high, but within that situation where you're at, God's going to see to it that you get the best. That's what Tina and I believe. Sometimes, you know, we we experience something, we say, well, God, help us. And we look back and say, you know what? Maybe it, it wasn't the best thing we could have ever done, but in the situation we were in, God really helped us, and we got optimum yield. Oh, come on, give the Lord praise. And so uh, that's enough of that. But so let me just finish this by giving two parallels, two people, Abraham and Jacob. Abraham and Jacob, they were both rich. They both experienced God's grace. They were both great people, but very different. And I would like to recommend to you to look to Abraham rather than Jacob. Are you with me? Let me give you some of the characteristics very quickly. I think they'll help me on the PowerPoint. Abraham had great wealth. Genesis 13:2. Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. Number two, I notice about Abraham, his ambition was obedience to God, not wealth. You find all that he failed, he messed up, but he seemed to have an ambition. I want to obey God. See, that's interesting. And then, and I think about Abraham, he left everything to follow God. There was no guarantee other than a promise of God. He left Ur and Chaldea and then went to Haran and he had some business there. And then he he went from there. He, he, He was just no guarantee other than a word from the Lord. And then, we don't know about Abraham, he refused to quit when tested. You know what happened to Abraham when he came to the promised land? There was a famine in the promised land. I mean, can you imagine? He had a good business in Ur. He had a good business in Haran. And then he comes to the place where God called him. And the first thing that happens is a famine. You could say, well, what kind of will of God is this? You know, I'm giving up. I'm quitting this journey. But he didn't quit. Oh, come on. That's, that's a good one. And, and, then, and then God was his source. When when earthly kings try to make him rich, he says, no, I'm not going to receive that from you because I don't want anybody to say that you made me rich. God is my source. Oh, that's a lot to learn from that. Then he practiced generosity. You know, when he had the opportunity, because he was kind of the big guy in the situation, but his nephew Lot wanted to take the best land. He wanted to have the best, you know, plot of land, the best farmland. Then Abraham, he says, well, you go ahead and take it. He could have used his powers as no, I'm, you know, you're under me, you're my nephew, and you do what I say. But he had that generosity. These are all good points to consider. Then he, he served God when it cost him everything. You remember, God didn't want him to kill his, his son Isaac, but he, wa- he was tested. He was tested. And he said, God, you're so big, you gave me this son supernaturally, even if he was to die, you could raise him back again. You could raise him back again. I'm going to trust you. You know, Abraham had his ups and downs. He had his trouble. But you can say about Abraham, for a very long time, he lived a prosperous, beautiful life. And then the eighth point, he was a celebratory tither. He celebrated the victory that God had given him by bringing tithe. Now, look at Jacob in comparison. Jacob was also wealthy. Jacob was wealthy. You know, he, and, and God loves, you know, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is that beautiful? So just because Jacob was a little different than Abraham doesn't mean he, God wasn't his God. So, but then Jacob was an ambitious, opportunistic schemer. I could have put, made three points out of that, but I put all the words there. An ambitious, opportunistic schemer. He's always looking out for number one. Because he figure I'm going to have to help God to prosper me a little bit here. And so when he sees his older brother, his twin brother, a little hungry, he doesn't just say, I want to be a good little Christian here to give you some soup. He says, I give you the soup, but you give me the birthright. And then, you know, when you're trembling for food, you, you, you'll sign anything on the dotted line. And so he fooled his, his elder brother, and then, then he fools his daddy because daddy was going a little bit poor in his eyesight. And so he said, I want daddy to lay hands on me and, and bless me. With the blessing that my brother thinks he's gonna get. And, and so he was kind of smooth-skinned, and his brother was like a real hairy kind of a guy. And, and, and so he put on these animal skins on his hands, and, and and him and his mother, they go into the father Isaac and said, Oh, feel here. Esau is here. And he said, Oh, it must be Esau. There's so much hair on the arms. Must, he's pulling the hairs. Can you see that? He was a schemer. Schemer. Very different from Abraham. Very different. Just opportunistic, saying, "What what can I do now? What what can I get away with?" And of course, he was also the victim of opportunism because then he gets bargaining for his wife, and and he's going to work so many years for one wife, and then he ends up with another one. How many know it was a mess? All right. Then, then, then number three, he had a breakthrough with God, but it it doesn't end all the trouble. Remember when he wrestled with God, and God blessed him? But you know, the trouble continued. He said, "Jacob had a lot of sadness." I don't want that for you. Beloved, I I wish you to prosper and be in health as your soul prospers. Is that all right for me? As the founding pastor of this church say to you, and to say to you who are friends and partners around the world, Beloved, I wish above all that you would prosper and be in health as your soul prospers. So I don't wish you the Jacob scenario, even though in the end it turns out okay. You know, he had all kinds of problems. Very sad life. His wife, his favorite wife, was an idol worshiper. She was hiding little idols in in the cupboards. Don't look at me like that. That's in the Bible. There was rape in his family. His son was sold as a slave. He was fooled for 20 years. Now, in the end, so so he had a breakthrough. You know, sometimes people can have an encounter with God, but, but there's things going on. That's why I want to lay a foundation for you to have a prosperous life. If you're a senior citizen, you're not going to go out and start something now, and, but, but God will help you where you're at. If you're a single parent, if you're a young adult, wherever you are, how many are willing to say, God? I invite you to help me. How many are willing to do that? All right. And so then then I said, God's grace restored everything to Jacob after much heartache. Remember, you know, he received that wagon of good things and he got all happy and and it all ended up good because God is a good God. Hallelujah. So Jacob experienced God's grace. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So even if you've been an opportunistic schemer your whole life, I hope you'll change after this. But if you have been, God is still good to you. His grace is sufficient for you. But I don't wish you. Jacob is an example. Even though he was later called Israel. I don't wish you the blessing of Israel or Jacob. I wish you the blessing of Abraham. Oh, this is good. Okay, two more verses quickly. Galatians 3. Almost like one verse. Now the promises. Now we back in the New Testament. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. He doesn't say unto seeds as to many. But rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. So whatever blessing we see God giving to Abraham, that blessing is on Christ. This blessing is on Christ. And then verse 29, and if you belong to Christ, let me ask you, do you belong to Christ? Anybody here belong to Christ? Can you shout affirmative? Then you are Abraham's descendants, or Abraham's heirs according to the promise. So I've had this desire in me to take a few services where I lay a foundation. I gave you a little bit of the history of this. And I do feel that the beautiful message that God wants to help us, that Abraham's blessing is ours, have been hijacked on both sides, been hijacked in different directions. And people fall for things. I don't want you to fall for things. I want you to check everything by the word, including what I'm preaching. You, you go home and read the Bible. I don't, I'm not going to stand and say, well, I'm the man of God, and I have so much experience, and I've been to 100 countries, and I have done this. No, I trust that Jesus lives in you. Uh, my point of preaching is not to dominate your mind with ideas that you must unquestioningly re- receive. Uh, no, we are teaching the Word of God, but I do believe that when you study the Scripture, you will say, that's a good teaching. I believe that helps me.